want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here. It seems like it's been a while since we've been here. Uh, it's a blessing being in the Sunday school class this morning. There's one um, thought that Brother Norman shared that I found particularly profound for my own life, and that was the thought that that uh, God could raise up out of for seed to Abraham out of anyone, uh, but what he's really seeking is a spiritual connection with people, and uh, and that's what he loves, and that's that's his desire is a spiritual connection. Um, this morning, I want to talk about an element of our Christianity that I think is so important and so integral to to maintaining that spiritual connection with our Heavenly Father. And uh, to be to be honest, this is a subject that I was asked to share on at uh, Ebenezer. I found it rewarding sharing it there, studying on it, and I'm sharing this again. A subject I was assigned, the forgiving brother. I'd like to read out of uh, Matthew 6 uh, for an opening uh, scripture. Uh, Matthew 6, starting with verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Let's uh, stand up reading the scripture. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in, who is in the secret place. And your Father who is in the secret place who sees in the secret will reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have in need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then Jesus adds this, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You may be seated. So what I see when I'm reading this scripture is that that God is looking not for some, or not giving some little recipe, some little incantation that people can say or can pray, but He's giving them a recipe here that goes much deeper. It goes to the heart of the person who is praying, the person who is asking, and says, it says, I will be willing to do what I'm asking to have done. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus goes on to address that again at the end. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus wants 
this living seed of us in our lives that he's given to us, he wants it to reach deeply and to change the way we act towards our brothers. Going to, uh, moving then back to Genesis 50, I'd like to look at Joseph a little bit and look at his life a little. Genesis 50, 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers, thinking of forgiveness again, the forgiving brother, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the, for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they for they did evil to you. Now, now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. So these brothers, after the father, their father Jacob had died, for a little background here, refresh our memories, after, you know, after the father Jacob had died, they went, they took Jacob back, they buried him at his, at his burial place, um, and, and then came on back to Egypt again. And then the brothers, I think this was a burning question on their mind, what is Joseph going to do with us? How is he going to respond to us? He's taken the place of our father, really, our father Jacob. And maybe Joseph just withheld his hand from punishing us because of Jacob, our father. And so what's going to happen now? Because, you know, pretty much we're at our brother Joseph's mercy. It's from him we're getting our sustenance. He's the one that's given us this fine line of Goshen. He's the one that, uh, you know, has given us the grain, everything else. We're all at his mercy. And, you know, what are we, what's he going to do? We've got our, ourselves and our wives and our children. And, and, uh, is, is he going to, uh, is he going to, uh, repay back now? Repay us the evil that we did to him? We know what evil that was. We remember the story of Joseph, how they, his brothers, and all their meanness, put him into that pit, and uh, then sold him to the Ishmaelites. And uh, then Joseph's story keeps moving ahead, and how that God was with Joseph, but we're thinking of this incident here, we're thinking of that, that terrible jealousy that the brothers of Joseph had towards him, and how they mistreated him. And... Uh, they kind of come back here with a handle, trying to get as much handle as they can on Joseph. He said, now remember, you know, uh, our father said this, you know, when, and, uh, uh, going back to Jacob again. Um, and I think it hurt Joseph deeply. It says here, That now, please, that the brother said, now please forgive the trespasses of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. In verse 17, latter part, his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for, and I think this is a key here, am I in the place of God? Joseph was acknowledging that he was but a piece in this puzzle. He says, Am I in the place of God? 
But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And I imagine that comforting and that speaking kindly to them meant more uh, than we could ever, uh, than we could probably realize. This subject of forgiveness is an ideal one for me to share on. I have a lot to learn about it yet. I don't feel like I've got the corner on forgiveness at all. I find that when the need for when the when there's a need for me to extend forgiveness to others others in my life, that there's a lot of Adam that rises within me saying, you know, there's really not this really isn't right. This really ought not to be done. Um, and it gives all kinds of reasons why, you know, at least forgiveness should be withheld for a time. And yet that's not the way of Christ. I also find within me that there's a tendency to expect or to believe that I deserve forgiveness. I deserve to receive forgiveness. Uh, and mercy from the hands of others when I'm the one in the wrong. So it's kind of a conflict there, and I think that's probably uh, fairly basic humanity. We expect uh, forgiveness. We expect mercy. We want it. Uh, but when it comes to us needing to extend it, it feels much different. I'd like to look back at Joseph again a bit. Just some thoughts about him. He was at the pinnacle of his life, as it were. The top, the apex. He was second to Pharaoh. He wasn't serving time in a prison or some nameless, or as some nameless slave to anyone. His social position was secure. He was second to Pharaoh and, and probably... Very possibly, the, the, as being second to Pharaoh was uh, one of the most um, most uh, powerful men in the world of his day. Now, we know there are a lot of civilizations outside of the Egyptian civilization, and who knows which one was most powerful. But uh, the Egyptian civilization was very strong and very powerful at that time. So he was a very powerful man of his day. He can no longer be terrorized by his big bad brothers or by anyone else. He was socially, financially, and physically secure. And I asked the question, did Joseph's secure position make it easier or enable him to forgive his brothers? Did it make it easier for him or enable him some way to forgive his brothers? What if Joseph had been still or still had been enduring hardships, serious hardships because of his brother's unkindness toward him? Would he have been able to forgive his brothers then? What if he was still slaving for a hard and ruthless taskmaster while his brothers were living free? What if his brother's position of being subordinate to him 
What if his brothers in his position were reversed? Would he still have been able to forgive his brothers? And then I'd like to reverse the question. Did Joseph's secure position make it more difficult, possibly, to forgive his brothers? At this point in his life, Joseph had an apparently godlike position in the face of his brothers. And I can see Joseph's seeming invulnerability at this point in his life making it more difficult to empathize uh, with his brothers or to reach out to his brothers. Uh, I could see it being a large temptation for him to rub the fact into his brother's face that they had been particularly, outstandingly uh, mean and unkind, uh, cruel to him. So there's, you know, there's different ways of looking at it. And, and this is what we tend to do when we think about forgiveness, when we're called to forgive. We tend to think, well, you know, if my situation were a little different, then I could probably do it. If, um, you know, this thing wasn't still bugging me or what, whatever, then I could probably do it. But I think it goes back to Joseph's res- response again. And that was, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Who, where am I at? You know, is it for me to decide um, to to dictate over you, to to hold this? Rather, he said, I will provide. I will use the resources that God has given me and will provide for you and your little ones. And I'm sure that in doing so, a great deal of agitation and and uh, angst on the part of Joseph's brothers was allayed. So going to us then, and thinking about the church, um, this, this question was asked a few Sundays ago, are there enemies within the church? And then the word was put out, are there frenemies in the church? And I'd like to look at that a little bit and, and uh, dwell on that a bit. I don't believe there should be enemies within the church, and I think that was pretty clear. Most people didn't, or everyone didn't, I think, felt that there shouldn't be enemies within the church. 1 Corinthians 6, if you read that passage, there Paul acknowledges and expresses there will be differences between believers. But he makes it clear that these differences should be settled, addressed and settled between brothers using brothers to mediate and not going outside of that. Paul goes on to say that if an issue develops into a suit or into something larger where it goes to court uh, within the brotherhood that there's a clear indication of Christians living in defeat. Beyond that, Paul says, rather suffer wrong. The question remains, are there enemies within the church? There shouldn't be. If people are esteeming one another as Christ says, as Paul points out, esteeming one another higher than ourselves, and there shouldn't be enemies within the church. But given that we are human, we have differences of opinion and so forth, there'll be a, there, there will undoubtedly be times when, when we have opportunity to exercise forgiveness to each other, uh, to our brother and sister. That could even feel like an enemy to us at a certain time. 
But I'd like to I'd like to think about this a bit and and focus on this a bit. You know, what is an enemy? Really, what is what uh, the definition of an enemy? Things aren't always as they seem. You know, if you if you boil this way down to very basic, a baby may decide that his mama is his enemy because she won't let him have all the candy he wants. You know, he wants that next piece of candy, and she knows it wouldn't be good for him. And, uh, you know, he can decide in his little mind that his mama is his enemy because she won't let him have a piece of candy. Well, of course, that'll probably pass very quickly, and, and she'll become his good friend again the next second, but... She can think that, or that child can think that for a bit. A, a, uh, an older child may feel his parent is, parent is very harsh and unusual because they limit his or her time on the computer. Um, maybe his mom or dad is his enemy for a little bit, or her enemy for a little bit, because of a limitation of time on computer or time, you know, whatever it is, however it is. An adult may perceive his brother or sister as very difficult and possibly even an enemy because they don't see eye to eye on a certain issue. I believe it's very important that we label an enemy for what it is. And that's a person who hates us and would harm us or, or destroy us, would wish, us, wish that on us. And, and I would believe that Joseph's brothers at the the point in his life that they put him into the pit were definitely his enemy. But I don't think an opponent in our life, in our church life, someone that maybe feels differently than we do about strongly about some subject or some matter than what we do is that we can define him as our enemy in a real sense. You know, that person who opposes your point of view in the board meeting should not be your enemy. We should be able to speak passionately without enmity and have good conversation that builds us up. You know, the person who has a serious talk with you and shares a concern about your direction in life is not your enemy. And he or she is not even your enemy if they haven't said everything correctly to you or waited until they've had a wonderful relationship established with you. Um, Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I think it's very important that we correctly identify who our friends are and who may be our enemies. Just because someone says something nice to us, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I've had people that would say what I wanted to hear. I've had that happen within the church, and I've had that happen on the job. Uh, I've had that happen in different situations. And, you know, I learn to look out for those people. Uh, a salesman will tell you what you want to hear. You know, you go to buy a car, all you have to do is say, now I want this car to have good mileage, and I want it to uh, get me from here or there or whatever. I want it to be a certain color. And that salesman can figure out how that car is going to fit everything you need just really quickly. And, uh, you know, maybe we feel very good about him because he's saying such nice things and, you know, bringing, bringing our life into uh, 
to a much better place and find out later that the engine is, you know, the car uses oil and the engine's pretty much uh, gone and, and uh, front wheel bearings are bad and, you know, whatever else. Uh, and he quickly becomes not our best friend anymore. Um, and I think that's the way, in a, in a real sense, um, we have to be very careful in how we take advice and who, you know, the way we perceive other people. Um, I know on the field in work, I look for people who tell me the truth. I want to know really how things work. I don't need someone telling me, well, they can do, they can do, and so on and so forth, and then find that the somewhere in the middle of the job that they can't perform, they can't do. You know, this excellent price they get, they've given me isn't going to work out after all. I don't, I don't want to find that out later on. I want to find... I want to know what it is ahead. And I think in our spiritual life, I think it's so important that we look at at uh, our brothers and sisters the same way. We look to find the truth from them and uh, not be not be offended or consider them an enemy if they don't give us what we want to hear. Um, not to say that everyone has, you know, can identify exactly everything about us, but many times a collection of advice will yield us a good a good uh, basis for how to move ahead. And and usually those won't, if, if things aren't going wrong, to have someone tell us, well, you know, tell us what that we want to hear, it's usually not going to help us uh, get onto the track that we need to be on. So I'm, I'm just saying this, uh, you're, you're faithful are the wounds of a friend. That person has a serious talk with you or with me. That's not my enemy. Um, now, thinking about thoughts on forgiveness. Forgiveness strikes at the depth of our soul, I believe. It strikes at our innate sense of justice. We've been wronged. And I've heard this often. We will not forget. We will not forgive. And uh, in... in in regard to the 9-11 attacks. We will not forgive until the wrongdoer has been brought to justice and, and has appeased us. And I know that feeling. I've been there. And uh, I know that as long as I'm in this life, as long as I'm human, I'll be tempted with that feeling. Times in life when... When I find myself preoccupied with thoughts or fantasies or a desire to avenge someone that's wronged me. Um, it's not a good place to be. It's a very trapped place. On this Freedom Weekend, there are many people who are not free. Many people who have enemies. Many people they are behind bars. There's a little article in The Economist that I thought was really uh, good. Uh, it's very unfortunate as well. The, the, the uh, title on The Economist said 2.3 mil, million reasons to reform our jail system. Then the article... Uh, itself was titled Jailhouse Nation. I'm just going to read the first paragraph. With less than 5% of the world's population, the United States holds roughly a quarter of its prisoners. 
Roughly 5% of the world's population, the United States holds roughly a quarter of its prisoners. More than 2.3 million people. Um, think about it, there's 80,000 people in Lynchburg. And uh, look how many times you'd have to multiply that. That's really a whole population in itself. 2.3 million people behind bars. And, and not only the... the, the travesty of having that many people behind bars, but also what it does to to people outside. The, the lack of input, the lack of uh, the cost, um, and all that goes with it. Including 1.6 million state and federal prisons and over 700,000 local jails and immigration pens. Per head, the incarceration rate in the land of the free has risen sevenfold since the 1970s and now is five times Britain's, nine times Germany's, and 14 times Japan's. At any one time, one American adult in 35 is in prison. Is in prison on parole or on probation. A third of the African-American men can expect to be locked up at some point, and one in nine black children has a parent behind bars. Very sad. And this is the nation of the free. Well, many more people in our nation are behind the steel fetters and the powers of darkness, I believe. Many, many more. Um, there are other ways to be jailed than to be in, incarcerated in the federal or the local prison system. There are people who can only have a semblance of peace when they can forget the bitterness, their bitterness in life through their work or their alcohol or their drugs or such. The people that can only have a semblance of peace when they're, you know, you've seen those people, some of you have seen them, especially thought about it in Guatemala, uh, people you call the winos or people who are, you know, collapsed. And I've seen them around here um, where you could tell people are not really living in a real state. And the reason they're doing that, they're looking for peace. They're looking for, they're looking for something, a way to get be, uh, beyond their their bitterness uh, beyond whatever is chaining them. Um, there may be other reasons as well, but I think that's probably the main reason. People who hate their past are, are people who have wronged, are the people who have wronged them and yet live out the very same actions because their focus has not changed. These are, again, people who hate their past or people who have wronged them and yet live out the very same actions because their focus has not changed. You think about it where you put your focus is where your actions will be as well. If you focus on your bitterness and on your unforgiveness, on those people who have wronged you, it's so prevalent that we'll, our responses will start mirroring where we're focused. Their, their future is chained to their past. People have not found out that, that true freedom that can only come through godly cleansing, forgiveness of sin, and forgiving others. I believe that the refrain, let freedom reign, should be the heart cry of every true child of God. Let the blind see. Let the bruised be healed. Let the oppressed fetters be broken. Let all men live fully and spiritually free in the image of their Creator, God. It's evident there are many people living with thoughts of hatred whirling around in their minds and calcifying their hearts, giving, their hearts of, giving them hearts of stone. 
And it is any wonder that there is so much ill and hurt in our society. So much bitterness, so many broken relationships, so much hardness written on the hearts of people's written on the uh, written on people's faces. But again, this little principle of forgiveness, while it's easy to to show every reason why we should embrace it and why we should live it, it's also probably the hardest to really put into practice. It strikes at our ego. Who does he or she think she is or he is that they can do this and get by with it? Our natural response is to bolster our forces, to fluff our feathers, sharpen our horns, our spurs, pull out the pen and paper, open the word processor, and to clearly put that person in his or her place. Let them know how to mind their own business. He or she has has treaded on our rights, and we'll not let them get by with with that. We'll not show weakness. We'll teach them. That's our natural response. And yet, it's not the heart of God. It's not what God would have of us. Forgiveness reveals our identity. It sends a clear message of who we are. In the work field, I've heard several times from people. Um, just recently, I heard from someone working at the health department uh, of, related to me of the uh, nickel mines shootings of those, of those 10 girls. And uh, just the awe and respect that was on uh, that individual's in that individual's voice when they told me about this uh, was was remarkable to hear. And and I looked it up. I googled again after after this uh, this lady told me about it. And of course, I I remembered it. The nickel mine shooting of those ten Amish girls. And if you Google nickel mines. Uh, all over the front page will be talk of forgiveness. Uh, that's what it's all about. And uh, there's an op-ed here. I want to read just a, just a, a paragraph out of the op-ed from the first page of Google. It says, Their forgiveness of a killer mystifies, but anger and revenge simply aren't an option. The blood was hardly dry on the bare board floor of the West Nickel Mine School when Amish parents sent words of forgiveness to the family of the killer who had executed their children by Don, Donald B. Craybill. Forgiveness is such a disciplined and an intentional act for the human that it always calls for a response from those who witness it. Again, I'll say this. Forgiveness is such a disciplined and intentional act for the human that it always calls for response from, for, from those who witness it. It is so counter-human that it has to be intentional. It has to be uh, a discipline. And, and it calls for a response for, for those who witness it. And as of such, people, people will question the motive, the ability, and the power to forgive. I believe that forgiveness given from the love of Christ will always shout the giver, capital G, the giver's identity. It would always shout that this is a child of God when it's given with the right motive and with the love of Christ. So what does forgiveness accomplish? 
First of all, it frees the victim from the burden of the offense. It frees the victim from the burden of the offense. We as humans are not capable capable of much burden. And the burden of an offense has the ability of quickly sidelining us of our much greater purpose in life. To forgive is to drop the burning coal from the palm of the hand. It's to drop that, it's like having a coal that's just burning us, killing us. To be able to drop that and let it go. To drop the change from the wrist. It's the crushing, it's the freedom from crushing spiritual interest. The kind of interest that never lets us be spiritually free and victorious. The devil would love to keep us chained to bitterness. It calcifies our heart. Again, it makes, gives us a heart of stone eventually if we hold bitterness. And, and the devil would love to keep those chains of bitterness around us. Because he knows as long as we're in those chains, we really can't achieve the full purpose that God has for our life. Forgiving doesn't mean we won't acknowledge the hurt. But it is taking definite action not to dwell on the hurt, but rather to seek healing. You know, the, I don't know about you, but I can remember times in my life where I just didn't want to forget the hurt. I, I you know, I wanted to relive it just, just to make sure that I relived it. I don't know why. And uh, not that I, I that, that I could say that I've had any terrible things happen to me. I don't think I've had anything more than probably normal. But you know, just just little incidents can can easily make us aggravated, make us want to relive. Um, but it doesn't, you know, forgiving doesn't mean we won't acknowledge that there's been a hurt. It's, but it's rather looking towards the healer. It doesn't mean we won't need time for healing. In reading Joseph's account of his first meeting with his brothers, to his latter generous offer of support. You know, that first meeting with his brothers, he was pretty tough with his brothers. And uh, I was reading through that again, as I was studying for this, and um, you know, I see a, a bit of a different Joseph, I think, here at this latter account than I see at his first meeting with his brothers. Uh, a bit more of a uh, dependency on God, a, a lot more of of reaching out to his brothers. You know, I think there's sometimes it takes it uh, it, it takes some time to to really reach a deep level of forgiveness. It, but it does clear the path. Forgiveness clears the path, so we can keep driving with our eye into the into the uh, on the road ahead, instead of having our eye glued, uh, glued to the rearview mirror. You know, we can't we can't make good progress when our eyes glued to that rearview mirror. We can't really look ahead very well, make good decisions. God has a far greater purpose for our lives than bitterness and, and a spirit of revenge. Number two, uh, it provides the victim the avenue of reaching the offender in a spiritually meaningful way. When Romans, in Romans it says that uh, to forgive, to do good to your enemy, if you hunger, feed him, if you thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. I don't believe it's the will of God that, that offenders won't suffer. Uh, in contrast, I've become more, I believe, aware of the reality that God would have 
would have offenders suffer very deeply, but that the suffering that God would have offender, the offender suffer is best described in Psalms 51.17, where it says the sacrifices of God, are, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. I believe this is the kind of suffering, the kind of, of agony the forgiving spirit can assist or work with God to afflict upon the offender. It's far deeper, broader, and eternal restorative kind of suffering than any unforgiving human can inflict upon his enemy. And it's it's not for the purpose of seeing his offender suffer so much as it is the result, uh, looking for the result of a of a um, relationship for his offender with God. Uh, looking to help his offender find a relationship with God. And that's going to bring about that suffering that's restorative in, in his healing for his offender. The kind of suffering that we would wish on our offenders is not a prison sentence or a lashing or a financial reversal or sickness. And it's neither the response of an offender that says, I'm sorry, but really doesn't care, doesn't really mean it. But it's that suffering of genuine remorse and repentance. And I shared with you all, uh, I'm not going to share this again, uh, maybe just a bit, but not in the full story, but of a, of a lady, a counselor I read about here recently, who... Um, her her husband, I mean her her sister and her sister's husband were shot and killed by a burglar. And this lady actually counseled victims of of crimes. And and her way of counseling with people was is to help them to understand that by forgiving or by and, and forgetting that they could live their lives again. But when this happened, it put her in a real of course, into a real conundrum. Was she really going to be willing to take her own advice to heart? She so badly wanted just to make that person, that offender, suffer. She so badly wanted to see him in prison, get the life sentence, or else even be uh, executed. I mean, she that, that was her first desire and emotion. And yet she realized, you know, from her own advice, this her attitude was going to trap her. And uh, with time, she, she, in prayer, she was a Christian. She was able to go visit this man and finally visit him on a, this young man, visit him on a regular basis. And finally, after a couple of years, uh, was able to bring him to the Lord. And she said it was just a joy to her at that point. But that she realized that in doing this and reaching out, that she brought about a suffering in this young man's life that could have never been accomplished uh, had not the power of God worked in his life, had she not been able to be an in, able to be used as an instrument to forgive and bring Christ to this young man. And I believe that's the kind of suffering uh, that it's a restorative kind of suffering that God would have for for every offender. And we're all offenders in some way or other when we really stop and think about it. 
We need that suffering in our life of a broken spirit, a contrite heart. So how do we forgive? We love and pray for those that offend us. If it works for our sworn enemies and those who would physically harm us, certainly this should be effective for our brother or our sister who we're at odds with. Matthew 5.43 says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Believe that understanding that for the most part, the heart of evil is not the face of our enemy. And also learning to understand our offending brother's motive can be helpful. You know, for the for the enemy, that the his the for the true enemy, and it's hard to exactly define the difference between your frenemy and your enemy and so forth. It's more about what is our response. Um, but to, to understand that that the heart of evil is not necessarily the face of your enemy. Sometimes things happen, responses take place that are that go much deeper than than uh, someone's attack at us. Understanding someone else, why they why they uh, act the way they do, and trying to trying to work God's love in their lives can be a real way to to aid us in forgiving. You know, sometimes just understanding our our opponent's point of view or someone that you know thinks differently than we do, understanding their motive. Their point of view can be real helpful. A phone call is sometimes all it takes to clear up some hurt feelings or misunderstanding. And at times it takes more time, more effort, more involvement. But it's worthwhile. It's worth the effort. And sometimes, maybe in cases of, of, of deep offense of abuse or so forth, there'll be need of godly counseling and, and maybe mediation. But the success of that will only be uh, good and effective uh, so long as there's a deep commitment from uh, the victim's part and the defender's part to, to, uh, towards um, godly love and blessing for each other. I think there's reasons why forgiving a brother may be more or be, might be pre- peculiarly difficult for us. Fellow Christians, these are things that come to my mind. Fellow Christians should know better. After all, these people shouldn't offend me if they're really Christians. Brothers are fellow men. No, another one is brothers are fellow men that we need to rub elbows with on a regular basis. These are folks we sit in the pews with, people we make decisions with, people we deeply agree with and in a paradoxical, oddly paradoxical way we're prone to deeply disagree with. Um, and so maybe we can start becoming sarcastic towards each other. Brothers are common. We t- why take the effort to forgive them? You know they're with us every day. Uh, I'm I've heard and I've I'm afraid participated in some pretty deep sarcasm in my lifetime. Humor that went quite beyond being nice or simply good natured. And you know those things I think. Are thing those those kind of, that kind of humor um, 
sarcasm, deep sarcasm. And I'm, I'm one that likes a good joke. Um, but when uh, sarcasm becomes leveled at somebody, I think it has a way of, of uh, one, showing that there is some bitterness on the part of the person delivering. And, and also, it's divisive. It has a way of being divisive and, and hurting and cutting. And, and keeping the body of Christ from really being all it can be. Our extension of forgiveness is limited. It can't take the place of God's forgiveness for the offender. It cannot force repentance in the perpetrator's heart. And it cannot fully mitigate the reaping of wrong actions in the perpetrator's heart, their consequences. It cannot work salvation in the perpetrator's heart. It can simply aid uh, in helping that person to see God, to see Christ in the heart of Christ through us. Forgiveness is a way of life for the Christians. And I was going to read Romans 12, but I'm not going to do that. But I think this scripture fits in so well for what the life of forgiveness should be like. I'll read just a couple verses. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Bless and do not curse. Do not take revenge. Live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. Do not be overcome by evil. Don't let that bitterness overcome you, but overcome evil with good. Rather, let forgiveness reach out and help in overcoming evil. As we forgive our debts, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus' words, telling us how to pray. This is something we're supposed to put into action. God bless you as you exercise this work of forgiveness wherever you're at in your life. It's a work, but it's also an attitude. It's a deeply seated um, action, I believe, in the Christian's part. God bless you.